0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Talk radio
2: across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a bright new day here, of course, at Talk Radio as we bask in the glory of the sun shining, the future looking fabulous and the road ahead unencumbered by the kind of numpties that prevent progress. Apart from those people that are blocking the M25, of course. Uh, All in all, it's been a pretty good week in the Independent Republic, and I want you all to share in the largesse that we are all feeling this morning, right? First up, we're joined by Claire Fox, who's got plenty to say about the police and crime bill, and how important it is that we don't let this government grab any more of our freedoms in the name of safety, and in the name of a crackdown on crime. She's talking about protesters, of course, and protesters are out in force once again this morning on the M25, uh, trying to convince everyone that the most important thing that we can do to save the planet is to insulate everybody's house it's a very weird campaign i have to say we'll find out what baroness fox makes of the proposed crackdown on those insulate britain protesters i think they've arrested 25 of them already and we'll get her view on the woman who is suing the police for arresting her strip searching her and holding her in custody for an hours for the crime the terrible crime of not wearing a mask can you believe it? 0344 499 1000. John Rental is here as well with his take on a fascinating week in politics. From the cabinet reshuffle to a deal with Australia and the United States designed to put the frighteners on China. He might even give us a sneak peek into the 1,400 words speech. Sorry, 14,000 word speech currently being crafted by Sakir Starmer. We'll be checking in with Paul Charles as well for the latest on the travel business today. Later on, we should be hearing that more restrictions are being lifted, the traffic light system could disappear, and it could be holiday bonanza time. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you hearing? Where are you going this weekend? And what is your school telling your children about the vaccination programme? Because that should be kicking off fairly soon as well. 0344 499 1000. We're also talking about the food you're going to be eating. The government's now approving genetic engineering in UK farming but the big question is how safe are genetically modified crops I don't know too much about this stuff so if you know anything about it and you can tell me I'd love to hear from you we'll be digging into the latest news as well that most cases of what's known as long COVID aren't actually COVID at all surprise surprise And because it's Friday it's time for another sparkling edition of the Perrier Awards in the company of Yorkshire's finest Izzy Rowland you're listening to me Mike Graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is Friday. We are about to head into another weekend. I've got to head down uh, south after I finish the show here today. So I do very much hope that those insulate Britain idiots are not blockading the M25. It takes long enough to get out of London these days. Let's talk to Baroness Claire Fox, though, non-affiliated peer, director of the Academy of Ideas, of course, as well. Claire, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, how apposite is it that, you know, we, we ask you to come on the show, you want to talk about protesters, you want to talk about the Police and Crime Bill, and here we are, they're all at Junction 3 at Swanley in Kent, uh, and they're in Leatherhead as well, uh, blocking the roads for the third time this week.
1: So it's very important to note that one of the things the government's doing is using things like Insulate Britain and the absolute nonsense antics of uh, Extinction Rebellion as an excuse to bring in this uh, part three of the police and crime bill, which will effectively ban protests Mm. in all sorts of ways or restrict them. And the thing that's so frustrating is that, you know, these people are barely protesting, but as we've all seen the pictures, there are plenty of laws on the statute books as we speak that would mean that the police could actually deal with that protest. Mm. Because actually it's not like a protest as usual. This is a major disruption of the highway. Use that law to arrest them, to take them away. Right. And stop them disrupting. But in fact, the police seem reluctant. So I'm very reluctant to let the government bring in a bill that will affect all of the rest of us because they know how irritated we all are at some of the... Yes, really, narcissistic, uh, you know, nihilistic protests we're seeing—it just drives me mad. That bit.
2: Well, it does. What would actually be the the, the result, uh, Claire, of this bill? If this bill goes through as it is, right? What would that be able to to do? Well, what powers would it give uh, to people uh, to stop people like insulate Britain from protesting, if any?
1: Well, what the, what they're saying is is that they will now have a whole uh, series of. Uh, ways of assessing whether a protest should go ahead to see if it will disrupt ordinary people mm. they've got this really mad one which is a noise trigger so the police will be given um the ability to decide if a demonstration is going to be too noisy and that that will upset the businesses and so of course when they're saying this or and then they say any protest that will disrupt anyone could be banned or could be restricted the whole point about protest, if you've got to have a march through central London or through central Manchester or anywhere, you're going to disrupt people. But they're playing on the kind of disruption we've seen from Extinction Rebellion, which isn't the usual kind of protest disruption, because they go out of their way to actually stop people going about their normal life. And so as far as I'm concerned, that's something that the present law should deal with. But they're playing on the emotional frustration we all have with these people, To mean that they can stop a demo for being noisy. Mm. By the way, they've also brought it, they're also proposing to widen the geographic area where you can't protest. Guess where? Around Westminster. Yeah. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, it's the talk about creating a safe space for parliamentarians. They don't want people to be protesting loudly near the commons or the lords and of course that's exactly where people should be free to protest
2: well they should be but there's also a level i think of responsibility claire isn't there that some of the groups who are protesting at the moment can be quite violent can be quite threatening we've seen um harassment um things going on with various individual mps and whatever you might think about mps or whatever you might say to them You know, I think we need to hope that we live in a world where nobody should be frightened to walk around Westminster just because they happen to be a representative of something.
1: No, but this is why the law can be an unhelpful instrument on this, right? They have used the fact that we can be harassed. I mean, I go into the Lords and I've been chased up and down by some of the people who haven't still accepted that we've left the European Union. And, um, you know, they want to shout at me and all the rest of it. And you could say, right, you need to bring in a Claire's law to protect me from those people, Mm. yeah? But actually, there are plenty of harassment laws, and if I wanted them to be arrested, I probably could get them arrested. But I don't... I think it's something you have to put up with. It doesn't mean I think that behaviour is good. What I don't want is this new bill that now is saying that one-man protests or any kind of interference like that will have an extra law added in. Mm. The reason I'm saying this, Mike, is we've just been through... A very long period where the the state, if you want, has accrued to itself a lot more power than it had before. Yeah. And so, what makes me nervous is that that if you let you know new laws get made about protests, it, it, it doesn't explain why the police, as we've seen them over the last eighteen months, prioritise, for example, harassing and arresting people who put out a wrong tweet won't arrest people who are sitting in the middle of a highway. Mm. So I'm not defending those tactics. I'm saying there's laws on the statute book. And the bigger problem is, why is it that the police have a differential approach to the way they police different protests? And, that is clearly, go in and that's clearly an issue, isn't it? It is a massive issue. There's something political going on there, don't you think? I mean, I I just don't want the, the government to bring in laws more laws that will affect all of us if we would want to make our position known. Mm. I think it's important we defend our right to protest and not let the egregious behaviour of people like Extinction Rebellion become an excuse for making us live in a more illiberal yeah. No, I
2: t- totally agree because it seems to me it's the operational aspect of what the police do that is the problem. Because they clearly take instruction from their superior commanders on any given day. Um, and they get given instructions on how to go in or how not to go in. I mean, I, uh, it's a very small story for me. But I, last time I went down to Parliament Square was the opening, state opening of Parliament. And um, I was walking across Westminster Square because you know how they close it all off. And you had to go around the back of Westminster Abbey to get to College Green. And there was no traffic because they closed all the roads. This copper um, started shouting at me to get off the road. And to walk on the pavement and I said no thanks I said I'm in a bit of a hurry I'm walking over there and he came over and he started sort of trying to push me with his arm and I just let him have it I said you better stop that I said otherwise it's gonna be a problem and we'll have to start yeah. my radio show from here with you on it and he let me go but if I hadn't been able to do that you know God knows what he would have done he probably would have hurled me to the ground and arrested me for, for you know for, for, for being um, cheeky to a police officer or something.
1: But you also saw the the situation yesterday um, I think it was yesterday, but anyway, one of the M25 protests, where there seemed to be a relatively kid glove atmosphere to the people who were blocking the road. Yeah. And then when some angry drivers and motorists got out of the car to try and move the protesters themselves, the police were quite heavy-handed mm. with those members of the public. So what what I think has happened is is that there's a there's a broad Sympathy to some protest. That's the point yes, I'm trying to make. I think, make. I, right, I, yeah. I think I, I, you know, you can't accuse the police of that, but there does seem to be a differential form of protesting. Mm. And by the way, this bill will make it worse because it gives the police far more power than they would have ever had before to make decisions in advance of which protest they think should go ahead, should not go ahead, should be more heavily policed. And there's going to be massive penalties, huge fines, a year in jail, if you apparently, you won't even be able to defend yourself, so I didn't understand the complex rules, you could get put inside. So I think that it's a way of chilling protest. And no disrespect, but I actually think that there's a lot going on from this government that people might want to protest against. And when the government starts saying we're going to clamp down on protest, we should be nervous. Yes,
2: I think that's Right. Um, But of course, I've still got the old
1: Londoners hat
2: on. And what I don't want to see is London turning into kind of protest central, whereby every time you go out, there's some group of nutters having to go about something, holding up the delay and stopping everybody from going about their daily business. And I think there has to be a balance. And I can and I can see that if you don't do anything, it can get a bit out of hand. I mean, you can literally have four protests going on uh, between here and, and Oxford Street in any given day.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, my view is, is that I wish there were a bit few more protests. I, I don't. <laughs> well, it's actually, good to have somebody
2: to disagree with occasionally. Yeah, but
1: I don't, I don't, I don't, actually think we've seen a mass outbreak of protests. I think we've been dominated by uh, what's happened with Extinction Rebellion because they've taken over whole areas. But they're they're in a way not often protesting. Listen, the point of protesting is that you try and appeal to your fellow citizens. You kind of make your solidarity with a group known. Yeah. Like yesterday, I was down on the leaseholders demonstration and also down with rights for residents, um, who were the care home. Oh coaches. yeah, I wanted
2: to talk to you about that as well.
1: I, I, and we'll chat about that. But all I'm saying is they were two very different topics, both hugely important. They've been petitioning, sending letters to MPs. It's very important that their voices are heard noisily. Yes, but that uh, was quite a nice, but that
2: to me, and I wasn't there, but it looked to me like a very nice old-fashioned protest with some people who didn't look at all threatening, holding some placards uh, and trying to influence MPs. Now, that to me is absolutely the meat and drink of our democratic society. But if it was a bunch of snarling maniacs who were trying to punch the police every time they came anywhere
1: near them, I would take a different view. I think you, I think you've got first of all the snarling maniac question I haven't seen that much of it I think that I saw some of it are, yesterday
2: there was some people and, here
1: oh right, well there we go. <laughs> I think that there's I think that there's different forms of demonstration I don't want to start saying that everyone has to be polite on demonstrations like mm. that would be ridiculous I mean you know when they say that's when they were saying that we can't have noise on a demo no. right? it's like it's not a It's a bit like it's a bit
2: like it's a bit like hoping that you don't hear horrible chants at football matches. Unfortunately, you will.
1: You will. And also if the police. I mean, I I do think that we've seen some extraordinary examples of heavy handed policing of demonstrations. But what I'm drawing attention to is that some of the most disruptive, um, as it were, actions that we've seen in recent weeks have not so much been demonstrations as a deliberate attempt at disrupting the lives of ordinary people. Not because they happen to be having a demonstration, but they've gone out of their way to choose to try and disrupt and close down London. That's different than organising a demo that happens to go through London that will close the streets down. And so I think those demonstra- those actions should be policed properly. Of course, I'm not saying if somebody's defacing everything, you should stand by and go, oh, good luck to you. Yeah. I believe in the right to protest. Yeah,
2: because when they were spray painting Churchill's statue, I mean, you can't just yeah. let them do that. That's, again, it's a breach yeah. of a law which they can arrest a- them on.
1: But there is a law against it. I do not want them to bring in extra laws on the back of the fact that police won't stop people pulling statues down or whatever it is, or defacing things. I, I think all the time we have to think, do we need new laws? Because mm. if we have new laws, let me tell you, I bet you anything, if they brought in all these new laws, it will be, the as you say, the, the people who are on the leaseholders demo are the right for residence one that will end up being stopped mm. from organising. Right. It's the wrong thing to do. It's illiberal.
2: Well, also, opinion. I think the police are confused enough as it is. If you give them any more laws to have to interpret, exactly. uh, they'll, they'll leave even less of a cute clue about what to do. Yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit about this, um, uh, the care home thing that you were doing, because I was going to ask you, first of all, as well, about the whole business of vaccinations for care home workers. And uh, we spoke this week to a lawyer who's bringing a case on behalf of the workers to say that it's basically unlawful. Um, to insist on them being double vaccinated before they can get a job there.
1: Well, I mean, I, I've 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 spoken out against this. I mean, I'm I'm a um, very hopeful that more people who were uh, are entitled to it will take the vaccine. I mean, in other words, I'd like the care home workers who haven't had the vaccine to have the vaccine. But when I say I'd like them to, that's very different than saying or they should be sacked if they don't. Yes. Know? I think the vaccine has been very helpful in terms of stopping hospitalisations and serious illness. But obviously it's become a political weapon almost by the government. Mm. And I really find that dangerous. And here we are in care homes where we've already got staff shortages, about to lose tens of thousands, it looks like. Care workers will be sacked because they refuse a medical procedure. And that's something which trade unions um, are very concerned about just as much as, civil libertarians and of course the care workers themselves and i think that there's it's an indication of the fact that care homes are already in a certain amount of chaos but Mm. to talk about what the demonstration yesterday was about it was it was a protest by the relatives of people in care homes not just the elderly but every age group who were in care homes organized by rights for residents which is a campaign group that's formed during the last 18 months and led by some fantastic women they've really taken the lead and i'm really you in, in awe of them mm. and what they what they realized was that and it's still going on that they were just deprived as relatives of residents in care homes of any visiting rights and you know my mum was in a care home and you used to go into the care home and it'd say this is you know this is the resident's home you know you should treat it as their home yeah and that's the way care homes were treated but during the pandemic apparently to protect them, they've effectively treated care homes like prisons and denied relatives the rights to visit. And Mm. of course, it's heartbreaking stories. So they were handing in heartbreaking stories of people dying without seeing relatives, deteriorating hugely, both physically and mentally. People with dementia not understanding why they couldn't see their loved ones and completely counterproductive and unnecessary, by the way, Mm. because often the relatives were double jabbed they were happy to wear PPE if necessary or whatever, but they were actually stopped at the door, and this has led to this new campaign for something called Glorious Law, named after Ruthie Henshaw. Is that her name? Yeah. Yes. Um, the, the, who, who is the well-known uh, um, West End singer? whose mother, Gloria, died without being able to see Ruthie. And it was heartbreaking hearing that story. And they want to change the law in a good way to say that that would never happen again. And so there was loads of relatives down there um, at Number 10 handing in a petition. We didn't see very many politicians. I went down there. Sadly, Number 10 was uh, too busy, um, you know, sacking people and reappointing people and all the rest of it to even pop out the door, which I thought was a real shame because they should have just come out and taken the petition because it was an important case.
2: Yes, I think that would have been good. Stay with us, Claire, if you would. We've just got a couple of other things to catch up on that I want to talk to you about. Uh, We're talking to Baroness Fox, of course, non-affiliated peer, Director of the Academy of Ideas with some great ideas. This is Talk Radio.
3: Across the UK. Online, on DAB Plus and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic
0: of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio
2: talking to Baroness Claire Fox, who's, of course, in the House of Lords now, Director of the Academy of Ideas. Claire, I just wanted to finish up, because we haven't got a great deal of time. I don't know if you've seen this story about a woman uh, who was arrested, Juliet Johnson, 55, arrested uh, in a supermarket in West Sussex in February for not wearing a mask, even though she was exempt. Uh, She was taken away by the cops. She was strip searched. She was held for a couple of hours in custody uh, before she was let go. Uh, She's now suing them for wrongful arrest, false imprisonment, assault and disability discrimination. I just wonder if this is going to be the tip of the iceberg for something like this.
1: I do think that we're going to see a lot more um, you know people going to court. You you, you mentioned earlier about care workers mm. you might well lose their jobs because I'm been vaccinated and I know that there are lawyers looking at that. Yeah. I think that the, the we basically had 18 19 months where the government have been quite irresponsible in 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 the kind of legislation or just rules and 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 laws that they've just kind of spewed out in a way and it's going to lead to i would think lots of uh, uh, legal cases people suing people all sorts of things like this but you know it does relate to what we were talking about a minute ago mike i mean look at the way the police dealt with that woman Mm. they dealt with that woman as though she was a criminal for not wearing a mask as though she was like arch enemy number one. Yeah. And yet we've seen that they don't seem to know or they seem to be completely confused about how to deal with people explicitly uh, breaking the law on, on these kind of um, extinction rebellion things, stopping the motorways and so on. And then they kind of stand by and say, oh, well, we don't, you know, we're not intervening there. Right. So it just seems to me that the police have lost a sense of their priorities at the moment. And I I genuinely think that they were given, it's not, you could say it's not their fault, but I think the mask wearing is a perfect example where they weren't meant to challenge you, but they basically thought that if you weren't wearing masks, still do. If you you break any of the COVID restrictions, you must be some kind of an enemy who's trying to kill people Mm. via the virus. And I think that we lost all sense of proportion.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Great to talk to you, Piquet. We must uh, see you soon in the studio, perhaps, or maybe I'll pop down and uh, demonstrate outside your office and you can come out and buy me a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Baroness Claire Fox, director of the Academy of Ideas, very sensible woman, Uh, always talks sense. But uh, I want to hear from you on this because you might have had dealings with the police over the course of the last year or so in one way, shape or form. They did seem to, did they not, rather enjoy... The idea of telling people to put masks on and trying to make sure that people were wearing masks. I remember at one point on the tube, I was sort of ordered to put a mask on by some police officer as I was walking through the station. And I said, yeah, I've got it with me. I'll put it on when I get on the train. And he's like, you should be wearing it all the time. And I was just like, don't start, please. I'm not in a very good mood. It's first thing in the morning. It's not a great idea. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. Well, just when you think it's going to be a quiet week, it suddenly gets busy again. Later on this afternoon, we're hoping to hear that uh, there will be some travel restrictions lifted. We might be able to go to more places. Uh, We might be able to have people visiting here from more places. Um, But uh, let's talk to John Rental to see what he made uh, of the week, which I suppose, John, you'd have to say was dominated very much by Boris Johnson's reshuffle. Very good morning to you.
3: Good morning, Mike. Yes, indeed. Um, People still trying to make sense of it, including including me. Um, I mean, I, I thought think you were going two, to say including
2: well, Gavin Williamson.
3: <laughs> no, I think he, I mean, he, was, he was reported to be making a leaving speech before, uh, before the reshuffle had even started. Yes. So yeah. he, he knew what was coming. Mm. Um, but no, I think the two significant moves are uh, Liz Truss uh, being promoted to Foreign Secretary. I, I see that as a, a an attempt by Boris Johnson to uh, to uh, intimidate Rishi Sunak. Mm. Um, I think... He's trying to re- elevate uh, rivals to Rishi Sunak because I don't think he likes the fact that Rishi Sunak is so popular. And there's so many Conservative MPs um, think that, you know, they're in a very good place uh, as far as the next election is concerned, because they could just swap prime ministers if if Boris stumbles. Yes. and Once that idea gets hold, then, you know, Tory MPs next thought is, well, why don't we just get on with it and uh, put, put Rishi Sunak in? Uh, straight away. So mm. I think I think that's that's one of the big stories behind the reshuffle.
2: Yes. I mean, a lot of people have been saying that this particular reshuffle shows that Boris Johnson is very much in charge of his party. Would you share that view?
3: Well, it shows that a prime minister can exercise the one really important power that they have, which is to uh, to hire and fire ministers. Yeah. Uh, and he used that. He used the threat of the reshuffle uh, as a, a, a way of uh, intimidating his his cabinet into uh, uh, allowing him to railroad through that tax rise, although one or two of them were a bit reluctant about it, notably uh, Liz Truss, doesn't mm. seem to have done it harm. Um, uh, but uh, it, it helps keep them in line, and it is an exercise of pure uh, prime ministerial power. And, you know, prime ministers have to do it every now and again. They don't like it. It's difficult because it involves some awkward conversations. But you've just got to keep the treadmill uh, turning round slowly to give the uh, to give the younger... Uh, MPs
2: hope. Yes and I've always wondered um, about these things because I'm, I'm a bit of an anorak about some of this stuff having been involved in newspaper kind of politics and shuffling people around and making somebody from news editor to foreign editor and you know deputy night editor to night editor and all of that I'm always interested in who was in the room when they were making these decisions. So, who do you think was in the room with Boris when he was deciding to move Dominic Raab to promote Liz Truss? You know, to build on um, you know what he had done uh, with Michael Gove and move him across sort of sideways out of out of the way almost. Who was who was in the room with him?
3: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, and the one person that uh, Downing Street was forced to. Uh, deny was in the room. Was uh, was Carrie Johnson, uh-huh. uh, the prime minister's wife. Right. Uh, well, that's was, good news. Uh, <laughs> Dominic Cummings used to be one of the uh, the key advisers, and and the prime minister now relies on a wider circle mm. uh, of uh, of people, including uh, including le- leading civil servants. I imagine he would take uh, take advice from. Yes. Uh, but we don't really know who the most influential people are uh dan rosenfield uh is the chief of staff uh the most important sort of political uh appointee um a- around the prime minister and we know very little about his his political um instincts yeah. so uh, because because yeah, only, only,
2: act- only because i know from people who worked with him at, at city hall that he likes to have a sort of cabal around him you know i don't see him as single-handedly making these decisions if you know what i mean
3: No, although he would have made the big decisions. I think they uh, they would certainly come down to to him in the end. But, uh, you know, when it gets down to, uh, you know, uh, parliamentary under secretaries of state, um, you know, Boris Johnson is going to take a lot of advice from from the chief whip, Mark Spencer. uh, And that gives that gives Mark Spencer a huge amount of uh, power, which is why the whips... uh, The the whips are are such a powerful office. Yes.
2: And I mean, there had been a lot of talk beforehand, hadn't there, that there might be space uh, or there might be room made, shall we say, for some of those who were very critical of him over Afghanistan, like Tom Tugendhat, you know, who a lot of people after that great speech he made said maybe this is a future prime minister. But none of that really happened.
3: No, I mean, actually, most of the moves uh, lower down the scale were quite slow. I mean, very incremental shifts a lot of sideways moves of people mm. moving sideways at the same level right uh not many people moving moving up uh which is which is interesting because that sort of keeps that keeps the parliamentary party on its tones because they they know that promotion is possible but it's happening very slowly mm.
2: and you one of those as well who thinks that this talk of a possible election being called not particularly early but maybe within two years is likely
3: Well, that was interesting because uh, there's a story in The Times this morning suggesting that allies of the Prime Minister uh, say that he wants to go long and hold the election in 2024. Because Mm. immediately after the reshuffle, uh, when the Prime Minister put Oliver Dowden, a sort of trusted, competent minister, into Conservative HQ, uh, there was some speculation that that was to get the election machine ready uh, for an early election in 2023. Mm. Uh, And obviously there's a bit of a reverse spin going on i think the prime minister would will just have have an election whenever he thinks he can win it
2: yeah well i think that's the thing And, and and the one thing that makes me think that they won't move him out of the chair as yet is because the one thing you can rely on boris johnson to do is to win an election
3: well yes and uh you know there was some suggestion that the opinion polls were were moving um against him after the tax rise uh, but there's a there's a bit of a blip in the in today's YouGov because the Tories are back up six yeah. points. Yeah, that the was a,
2: that was a short time uh, a prize for Keir Starmer, wasn't it?
3: <laughs> it was rather. I mean, there is there is undoubtedly uh, the, the polls are tightening. The, the the Tory lead is coming down, but it's uh, it, you know at this rate it's going to take uh, Keir Starmer a long time to. Uh, to to yeah but this uh, into, is
2: but this is the thing isn't it if there wasn't any decent sort of opposition uh, to a government that is not doing things which are particularly popular every single day of the week you would think that they would be a bit better further on wouldn't you
3: yeah i think i mean the government is in a pretty good uh, position for uh, 2 years after a general election um, i mean obviously the the whole situation's been confused by the coronavirus mm. crisis uh, in the early stages of that uh, Boris Johnson didn't seem to be handling it very well but then the vaccine cavalry as he called them came over the hill uh, and rescued him and they, and you know the the success of the vaccines has actually had a lasting uh, benefit mm. for, for for Boris Johnson and and for the Conservative Party in the in, in the opinion polls yes and we uh, always
2: said didn't we John that the, in the end the kind of the move back to normality would be not necessarily led by the government but would actually happen almost, um, you know, sort of organically. And that seems to be what's happened in the last two weeks. I don't know about you, but I've noticed far more people around. I was out last night, um, unusually for me, because I don't normally go out in the evening. I was in Shepherd's Market, which was absolutely mobbed, completely rammed with people. Um, And, you know, all the the bars are full, the restaurants are busy, trains are busy again. You know, it's almost as though, regardless of whatever the government now says, people are going back to work, they're talking about uh, normality again,
3: and everything seems to be getting there. Yeah. And, you know, while the weather's um, still quite hot, you know, people can still um, congregate outside, which means there there isn't that much of a a problem. I mean, Mm. you can you can see that the scientific advisers are are, are very worried about the winter and they're trying to trying to bully the prime minister into uh, into announcing all sorts of uh, restrictions again. I don't think uh, I
2: don't think there will ever be a time when the so-called scientific advisers aren't worried. I think that's all they do is worry. They don't seem to do anything else.
3: Well, it is their
2: job, Mike. Well, no, it isn't, actually. Their job is to advise the prime minister of the current state of affairs and what the options might be going forward, not to continue to frighten everybody with ridiculous uh, programmes of, uh, you know, forward planning and predictions which turn out not to be true.
3: Well, you, you know, that that prediction the famous prediction that turned out not to be true did turn out to be true a bit a bit later that's the that's the problem well that, that yeah but
2: you can I mean, we can all play that game you know it's a bit like saying the world's going to end i bet you any money the world's going to end and then when it ends you go <laughs> see i told you told you it was going to end and you go well you know you're about to get something right in the end you know like your car will break down there's another one you know i can make you know your bike will need it will need a new tire because you'll get a puncture but as long as there's no time limit on it, it doesn't matter does it
3: you you ought you ought to write uh, columns for a living, Mike. I mean, that's that's how that's how I do it. I, I predict I predict everything. Yes. At, at one point or another in one of my columns. So yes. when it happened, absolutely right. I'll,
2: well, I well, my my favorite uh, thing to say to people is that uh, I've never got anything wrong before. And when they say that can't possibly be true, I say, well, I can't remember anything that I got wrong. And then they can't remember anything I got wrong either. So it must be right. <laughs> um, what do you make of uh, what do you make of the story? Of the Times this morning uh, reporting on Theresa May. Uh, what she said in the Commons yesterday. There's nothing worse than a former Prime Minister quizzing a Prime Minister, I think you'll find, is there? She's asking uh, if this New Deal, this Defence Pact, which was announced very suddenly and rather bizarrely, I thought, late on uh, Wednesday night, um, is going to lead us into war, she says.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, that that did make me sit up um, and think. I mean, the the one good thing about uh, a, a former Prime Minister staying in the House of Commons is you do sort of, You do listen to what they say because you actually know a bit about it, Uh, and that was quite an interesting, uh, interesting intervention. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I. I don't know what she she means by that. It would be interesting to uh, I think you, should get, you get get her on the program and ask her. Uh, yes. Uh, ask ask well, her I shall, what... I shall
2: so... I shall seek her I'll <laughs> see if I can see if I can seek her guidance but but it what, did you not think it was a rather odd announcement to make on that particular day. It sort of again came rather out of the blue, didn't appear to be necessary in terms of the timing of it and particularly weird to see three men who clearly have absolutely no rapport together whatsoever. Pretending to have sort of joined hands across the water and made this amazing kind of you know stance against China.
3: Well, yeah, I mean obviously, common interest is a strong uh, a, a strong bond. I assume the timing was was just to do with the fact that you, you know something as important as that is going to leak out, so you've got to announce it straight away, and mm. then you've got to manage all the different uh, time zones. Um, but no, it was it, it was very significant, and it's. Um, you know, I think it's a—it's actually quite a boost to Liz Truss as the new uh, foreign secretary, because mm. it means she starts off with uh, with something quite important happening. I mean, Dominic Raab must be uh, absolutely furious.
2: Yes, because clearly they just held on to it until, uh, until he disappeared. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and she... So, you know, Liz Truss got the chance to sit on the front bench... Uh, yesterday behind the Prime Minister as he, as he was making this important announcement to Parliament.
2: Yes. And speaking of, of disappointment, what do you think Michael Gove's thinking? Because I've heard two different versions of what he's about to do. You know, one, that the Department of Housing Communities is a very big department, which has all sorts of tentacles into all sorts of things. But while at the same time, he's been sort of moved away from what you might call the sort of the central hub of the government. Yeah.
3: Oh, well, I mean, the more I think about it, the more important I think that move uh, Seems. I mean, I think uh, because housing uh, and planning is so central to this uh, levelling up uh, business mm. that the Prime Minister much sore by, uh, he's obviously decided this is a really difficult problem. He doesn't know the answer. So, he's, so he sends Michael Gove in to, to sort it out, knowing that, uh, yeah, I mean, Michael Gove is extremely clever, able and imaginative minister who understands politics quite well. I mean, he may not be very popular, but he's a very effective minister. When it comes to. Well, he does seem to
2: get things done, doesn't he?
3: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, you could see why that uh, would have appealed to to Boris Johnson. Because, I mean, Michael Gove obviously wanted to be Home Secretary or uh, wanted one of the really big jobs. Um, And he's not going to get it. But uh, he, I think, will tolerate this job because he was said to be bored. Uh, At the cabinet office, because he was just he was Boris Johnson's central troubleshooter, Mm. whereas at the the Ministry of Housing, he does actually get, get the chance to get his teeth into some really difficult problems in a department.
2: Right. And is he still sorting Christmas at the same time?
3: I can't remember if he's sorted Christmas. He's certainly sorting out the Union of uh, of, of England, Scotland, uh, Wales and Northern right. Ireland. But same. wasn't
2: he also given the, 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 sort of the, the, the logistical task of what? fixing up the HGV problem and the delivery problem and the food chain problem and the making sure we don't run out of pigs in blankets problem?
3: You're quite right. He was he was supposed to be sorting that. out. I think he's quite relieved to be handing that on to somebody else.
2: <laughs> Stay with us, John, if you would. I want to ask you about party conference season, which is coming up uh, very shortly. We're talking to John Renzel for a chief political commentator of The Independent, of course. Uh, we haven't had a row yet, but uh, maybe we will. Uh, about the Labour Party. We shall see. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. I'm just looking, funnily enough, at The Guardian, John, a story uh, about Michael Gove, who's got a conflict of interest already over some donation that he received from a a property developer. Uh, But it's buried away on sort of page five, so I presume it's not that big of a deal, really.
3: Well, it's it's also a donation he received before he was moved to his current... uh, department. And, yeah. You know, the only reason we know about it is because politicians have to declare their donations thanks right. to the, uh, the the laws passed by the last Labour government. So uh, uh, it's, all, it, it's all fine. We can all make up our own minds as to whether he's going to be influenced by. Well, he's
2: government. outed himself, really, then, in that case. And so he's very unlikely, I would have thought, to suddenly be handing out deals to the same guy who gave him that money.
3: Well, he's going to have to be a bit careful. I mean, Robert Jenrick, <laughs> one of the reasons Robert Jenrick got into such trouble... Uh, was was precisely those kind of conflicts of interest. Mm. So uh, yes, uh, it, it's it's a useful uh, useful reminder as he starts his job, uh, just not to take any um any money from property developers, so that people might think that uh, he had a he had an interest to declare.
2: No, exactly right. Um, let's talk about conference season because um, it's coming up very shortly. Um, Boris Johnson made fun of uh, Keir Starmer uh, on Wednesday at the Dispatch Box with his fourteen thousand word. Treaties on uh, how how his vision for Britain was gonna was gonna roll out. He's taking a lot of stick yeah. for something he hasn't even said yet.
3: <laughs> quite. I don't know who uh, who briefed that fourteen thousand words. That was uh, that was a bit of a mistake. But I thought I thought Boris Johnson actually uh, didn't uh, deal with that very effectively because he said he could boil the fourteen thousand words down to four, which is vote Labour wait longer, yes. which I think just manages to draw attention to the fact that NHS waiting lists are an absolute disaster. Oh, they right. really are. And a really serious national crisis.
2: Well, this is what uh, I was saying earlier. I had a bit of a rant about the pounds and, and ounces debate, you know, and how the Brexit, uh, Brexiteers supposedly are now, you know, d- dancing in the streets because um, Lord Frost has said, oh, you can measure your potatoes in pounds if you want. Well, I don't think anybody cares. I mean, the government's been given plenty of leeway to introduce all sorts of things having left the eu you know bringing back yeah. ounces i don't think is really very high on anybody's <laughs> list of i'd rather i think i'd rather see the wasting list going down to be honest
3: it just means in every journalist's office around around the country yesterday uh, people were discussing how many ounces to a pound and how many how many pounds <laughs> to a stone yeah um I, I wanted to know how many, how many sickles to a galleon, but most people didn't get that reference. No, of so.
2: course. And also the Troy ounce tends to confuse people quite a lot as well.
3: <laughs> it does, rather. But no, I mean, aren't you relieved, uh, Mike, that you will be able to drink, um, drink your beer in pints now?
2: Well, yeah, exactly, because, I mean, I wasn't able to do that uh, a couple of days ago, so, uh, so I'm really, really rather pleased. Also, I'm quite happy as well that we haven't moved over to measuring motorways uh, in kilometres, uh, but rather in miles. The only thing I would also like yeah. to see is the ability to drive on the motorways without having to run over any protesters.
3: <laughs> well, quite. All that is a distraction, as you say.
2: Yeah, exactly.
3: The serious issues that, and problems that face the country that no doubt uh all the party conferences will be will be addressing, starting with uh, Ed Davey this weekend.
2: Yes. And it does feel, does it not, that when you are looking at these kinds of events like party conferences, that we are, in fact, no longer in a pandemic because it's kind of business as usual. You know, and things are not. Well, yes. Said- yes. We talk a lot about Covid still, but it's not the only thing we talk about.
3: Well, except the Lib Dems are still doing a virtual conference. I mean, perhaps that's because they want to save the money. But I mean, well, I mean they, and- could,
2: they could literally do theirs on a double decker bus, couldn't
3: they? <laughs> well, no. I mean, I, I went to the last in-person <laughs> Lib Dem conference uh, two years ago in Bournemouth, and the place was absolutely packed and heaving because everybody thought that Joe Swinson was going to be the next Prime Minister.
2: Well, that shows you how deluded they are, doesn't it? <laughs> you know. Well, quite. I mean, you I mean know, she didn't she went from being the next prime minister to not winning the election uh, and actually losing her seat. It
3: not holding her seat. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's it's what I mean. So she's not she's, yeah. she's not even in, in, in the job anymore. But but so, I mean, Ed Davey is the man who said when he was elected leader, I don't know what to say to you. So I'm going to go around the country to get some ideas and then I'll tell you what we believe in.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes. And uh, we've had a preview of his uh, conference speech in the Financial Times this morning. Uh, where he says he's um, not going to prop up a conservative government if there's a hung parliament after the next election, which sounds to me <laughs> right. Is that like the best he's away. got? It's, it's <laughs> like giving away your negotiating uh, your negotiating strategy, your negotiating leverage before you uh, even get to the election. I right. never thought, but uh it, no, a lot of what Ed Davey says uh, is a bit of a puzzle to me. I can't understand why the Lib Dems haven't uh, or didn't position themselves as the as the pro EU party after Labour. Right. Well I mean they territory. could have
2: also they could have made some traction by being the pro or the anti vaccine passport party as well because well, they, in,
3: well, I mean they're supposed to care about civil liberties so yes yeah, so, uh, they were rather they were rather slow to uh, to get on board mm. that ban
2: Yeah I mean I think that's basically the problem I mean you know the, the second opposition party in the commons now is really the SNP isn't it
3: Well it is the SNP yes that's why uh, that's why we get Ian Blackford asking uh, two questions at uh, PMQs Giving everybody the chance to, uh, to to leave the chamber, right?
2: Uh, <laughs> and he always it, asks yeah. the same question, pretty much, doesn't he? Really. <laughs>
3: Well, pretty well. I, I don't know. I'm usually leaving the chamber at that point. Yes, very wise.
2: Very wise. Well, um, listen, uh, good, I, to I, talk, good to talk to you. Uh, we've got to run because uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. But, John, I'm sure we'll speak to you next week. Uh, party season is upon us. Party conference season, I should say, uh, which is almost the same as party season. We'll be covering it all here, of course, at Talk Radio, uh, as you would expect, although I'm not sure about the Lib Dems. Nobody cares,
0: do they? Hi.
3: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk
4: Radio.
2: Let's now, though, uh, talk to Professor David Livermore, Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East Anglia, because, I'll tell you why, we're going to talk about long COVID, because long COVID has been one of those things that nobody really quite understands. Nobody's quite sure about the numbers. Nobody's quite sure about the details of some of the symptoms of it. Nobody's quite sure about whether uh, it is a thing, Uh, but there's certainly some evidence now gathering pace that it might not actually be as bad as it was originally thought. Professor David, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. It's been one of those kind of slightly odd parts of this pandemic, hasn't it, that people um, have suffered from COVID and then have said that they've suffered much, much longer from it as a result uh, of getting it, and in some cases simply not getting their sense of taste back or not getting their sense of smell back properly in other ways, saying they've been fatigued. But there's a report out today that says, actually, an awful lot of people who think they've got long COVID haven't.
4: I think that's absolutely fair. What the ONS has done is three things. One is to take people who've definitely had COVID and ask them at intervals afterwards whether they've got a single persistent symptom or or Mm. whether they've got any any symptoms at all persisting. And if you go to 12-week, after their infection, 5% say that yes, they've got at least one symptom. But if you look at the general population who haven't got COVID, then 3.5% would be reporting that symptom, headache, runny nose, sniffles, whatever. So calling those 5% long COVID is clearly wrong, because they're just reporting things which are common day-to-day ills that most of us get mm. anyway. Right. And, and we would- also did two other, other interesting things. And that was one, to ask about a single persistent symptom. So it was headache or whatever. Yeah. That really was running on that symptom and that symptom alone for the full 12 weeks. 3% said they had such a form of long COVID. But if you ask people the straight question, do you think you've got long COVID? Well, 11.7% said they thought they had. So objective symptoms says it's much rarer than people's assertion. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it?
2: Because, again, whenever I've asked other people about long COVID, and it tends to become a kind of political conversation, depending on what side of the COVID divide they're on, because those who want us to have more restrictions keep using long COVID as the reason for doing so.
4: Absolutely. It comes back all the time to what a poorly defined entity it is. Mm. I, mean, I think there are three things here. First, I think there's a lot of people who've had COVID and then have, you know, some mild persistent problem or, or you know, a bit of a bunged up nose or whatever right. that goes on for a while. And we've, we've all that, had that after common colds anyway. And to call that serious long COVID is a nonsense. Then you do have two much smaller groups. One are people who really do have something odd, persistent and troubling that goes on for a long while. They find they can't walk up the stairs without getting short of breath two or three months afterwards. And that's significant. Or that they've lost their sense of taste three months on. That's significant. And those, those are genuinely long COVID and concerning. Mm. But They're the much smaller group. And then the final group you have are the people who have been seriously unwell, who've been in ICU. And yes, you do take a long while to bounce back from that. But a great disservice has been done by conflating people with very mild, very common
2: symptoms Mm. with a
4: with a a major syndrome exactly and
2: is it any different in the end professor to what sometimes people feel after a very bad bout of flu you know because you know how people pretend they've had flu or they think they've had flu Mm -hmm. but unless you've been basically knocked out and been lying in bed unable to get up for about a week you haven't really had it but if you have had
4: that sometimes it can take a couple of months to get back to full fitness absolutely um it does. I mean, I I seem to suffer badly when I get a cold. It's not uncommon for me to have a cold in the in the middle of the winter, mm. and I've still got a slight catch on my breath or uh, around Easter, but right. then it disappears. Sort of thing's not uncommon, mm. and it, it's very it's very very unfortunate that this has been conflated with a serious issue and all lumped together as Mm. long COVID. Because, as I say, you do have this much smaller group of people who do have really quite significant symptoms that persist for a long while. And it's perhaps more akin to one of these other post-viral symptoms that we see with, say, Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, um...
2: Yeah, because one of the things that that is often brought to, to, to my attention is the way that this disease and this virus affects people so differently. You know, you can have people who have had symptoms which were very mild. You can have people who were, who got it and were very ill. Uh, you've got people who get it and were taken to hospital. I mean, we don't seem to really be any better at finding out why that is. You know, all I ever when I speak to, to doctors about it, they always say, well, the two major real factors involved in getting COVID and getting really ill are age and weight. But there's
4: more to it than that, isn't there? Almost certainly. Almost certainly is underlying genetics. There's some suggestion, and I forget just the linkage off the top of my head, between blood group. Um, some blood types seem to be more prone to severe disease mm. than others. Um, there's the question about whether you've recently had one of the other four circulating uh, coronaviruses, which do seem to have give some degree of cross-immunity. These are four common cold coronaviruses which have been in circulation throughout our lifetimes if you've had one of those perhaps that primes your t-cells a bit and those get and that gives you more protection mm. um but you know th- this is not uncommon for other viruses if you think of uh, uh, hiv aids there are prostitutes in kenya who had been exposed clearly hundreds of times to the virus but never got infected
2: mm. As, yeah. You
4: know, we, as a species, we're variable.
2: Yes. I'll tell you what another question is I'd like to ask. I don't know if you can answer this one. We're told by certain um, scientists who advise the government that we could have a big flu outbreak this winter, but we didn't apparently have any flu last winter. How is that possible?
4: well perhaps the various restrictions that we had last winter were much much better at controlling influenza and indeed other respiratory viruses than they proved to be at controlling covid but certainly worldwide it was a very light flu winter but flu is still there circulating at a low level it's a a disease that crosses between poultry swine and humans it will come back and the very fact that we didn't have a flu strain circulating last year giving a bit of boosted immunity to flu perhaps makes us as a species as a population more vulnerable to any flu that comes back this year Hmm. one of the problems is for design of flu vaccines is that normally you design this year's flu vaccine based on whatever flu was circulating last year and since there was so little flu last year it becomes trickier to choose the right flu strains to protect against. Mm. So, yes, a return of flu is a hazard. There's another respiratory virus, mostly affects children, uh, to a degree the elder population, but mostly children, respiratory syncytial virus. That too was suppressed last year, but has really come roaring back uh, in multiple countries, in Japan, uh, New Zealand, to a degree the UK this year. So. Yeah. We, we, we disrupted our whole natural ecology with other viruses. Right.
2: So uh, get ready for a difficult winter would be your uh, assessment?
4: I, I think we will have a bumpy winter, but we have to accept that this virus is now endemic. We've done what we can with vaccination. We have to get back to normality, but it would be very, very wise of the government to put some effort into having as much hospital capacity as they possibly can, rather than test and trace and all sorts of uh, complicated wheezes, have capacity. Yes. That's the most vital thing of all. if only... Because we will have some bumps on the road. Yes.
2: If only they could learn from uh, previous mistakes last year, that would be wonderful, Professor David. But uh, we shall see. Professor David Livermore, there, Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East Anglia. Wouldn't it be great, as I said earlier, if the a government could actually concentrate on fixing the things that are important, like enough space in hospitals, enough nurses, enough doctors, enough beds, enough capacity, enough ability to be able to deal with things that happen when they happen, rather than worrying about what would happen if they happened? That's the way to govern, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Gray. On Talk Radio, it's 1246. It's Friday, and it's time for this.
3: Ladies and
0: gentlemen, welcome to the Peria Awards!
2: It's all going on in there. <laughs>
5: The ante a little now bit, I was though. told we had to do
2: uh, go quite quickly to this because that yeah. means there must be a lot of them. Is that the case?
5: Uh, well, I don't know. Welcome by the way. Welcome, hello, welcome everyone uh, to the Perry Awards. This is where we look back on the so-called independent Republic of Mike Graham and choose our favourite moments. Excellent. So, uh can I direct everyone to all the uh, major mod cons? We've got Apple TV, all the rest of it, please get yourself on there as the all Apple
2: TV and all the rest of it. And
5: all the rest of it recruiting, uh YouTube. Yeah. Cuz cuz Amazon uh, Fire. Amazon Fire, that's it. Firefox. Yes. Yes, one yeah, of on them. your
1: watch. You can on your it. watch, Samsung yeah.
5: watch. Uh, because all of these are Visuals Bar 2. So, yes. Excellent. Um, so, following tradition, the first Perry Award goes to you, Mr. Graham, for forgetting the name of your own radio show. Thank you.
2: Welcome back to the original, to the uh, Independent movie, <laughs> Graham, I, <should> say. Uh, <laughs> I almost forgot what the show was there. I don't know yeah. why I did that. I think it was because I was distracted. Uh, yeah, I think I must have been. Yes. I can't remember why.
5: Ah, okay.
2: But I was probably reading something
5: probably. Because well, you
2: know we have to do 15 things at once here. You do. You know it might look like it's all calm yeah. <laughs> but you know it's not really we're pa- panicking all the time Aww. at all points.
5: Well you, you do a very good job of uh masking the panic. I do
2: thank you very much indeed.
5: However I've been told that I don't mask the panic well and I flap around. Do you? So, uh, oh, yeah. I wouldn't
2: describe you as somebody who flaps around. <laughs> I wouldn't say that.
5: Okay well I mean <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. Um, my mum's always like stop panicking. I'm like okay. Right. Uh, anyway earlier in the week, uh, Nicki Minaj and Chris witty uh buttered heads on Twitter. Peter Cardwell speaks to Julia Hartley Brewer on her breakfast show. This is a Perry Award for the best rap name of the week.
0: Other than
4: uh, Nicki Minaj, and that's yeah. coming from I mean, my own rapper name obviously is Cardi P.
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've defeated me. <laughs> <laughs> Cardi P Cardi P in the house Who
2: knew he had a rapper name
5: What would yours be
2: I've no idea I've never given it any thought Mikey G Mikey G I think somebody once called me uh, that
5: Mikey, G, Mikey or, G Or Or I don't know Yeah No What's your, what's your middle name G Unit G Unit G
2: Unit Wow I don't know MG
5: M- MG I, I yeah. mean that's
2: people Some people already call me that Little MG I'm not, I don't think little works Does it <laughs>
5: Little. uh, Little. I suppose little. uh, Yeah, L I L. L I L. L I L. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, Anyway, so next up is newly named Cardi P, a.k.a. Peter Cardwell. He was live from number 10 Downing Street reporting the reshuffle as they walked in. Mm. Uh, This is the Perry Award for not knowing who it is, which, can I point out, everyone know that it's Mark Spencer, Chief Whip. Uh,
4: Yes, indeed. No, that that is. uh, I think. Sorry, we're just seeing another uh, another possible uh, person
3: promoted. In okay. Sorry. Don't worry, we'll take it. It's good. Who's that? Jeremy? I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid. Brilliant. I don't know. I, don't know, I Do you should know, what? know. I love Peter Well, forever. He's standing on the step. We've got absolutely no idea who that is. That's fantastic. I was trying. Is
0: somebody saying to you? I was trying
3: to bust
4: that one, Jeremy. I'll be brutally honest. with saying another person who might be promoted, but no, I don't. I don't know. Don't know
2: it's great. Yes. Honesty in in television. I think it's a new thing. Nobody yes. else is ever this honest. Yes. And that's why talk radio, TV is going to be a massive success. Yes. Because we tell the truth.
5: We do tell the. If you don't know the something, truth, just the whole say, truth and nothing yeah. but the truth. If you
2: don't know something, just admit you don't know it.
5: Exactly. Right. Don't yeah. try and pretend you do. Exactly. That's
2: my words of advice for the day.
5: Well, taking your advice, um, yourself and multi um, Multicam producer Stephanie Amflit oh. get a joint Perry oh. this week for the technical incompetence of the week. Splendid.
2: we at the dispatch box in Prime Minister's questions and the evening ended with a bizarre press conference with President Joe Biden in the white
5: what's so, going on there so if anyone is just listening basically i think when you start there's an earthquake you, no you you're like it's so like so moving so our 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 very talented multicam producer spends a couple of minutes you know like getting you in Fixing in line it, yes. and everything and then as soon as you start you're like welcome and like move so oh did i yes oh yes. I see. I wasn't aware
2: of that. Well, <laughs> so, do move much.
5: Well, no, you don't, but I think we have to get you, you know, because we're, we're, we're an established. I know you're going to try and make
2: out you're perfectionist, but I'm not buying that.
5: <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, so over to the House of Commons, where the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care made an announcement. Now, one of the reasons we all enjoy these announcements so much is the sound effects from members of the Parliament. Uh, this is a peria for the sound effect of the week. Mm
1: legally mandating face coverings in certain settings (laughs) that was
2: great did anybody find out who made that sound (laughs)
5: because they
2: started booing him a bit later on as well
5: yeah they did can you you do yours if you object no (laughs) no
2: It's more of a meow, really, isn't it? It's, <laughs> not, it's not the sort of sound I would make, to be honest. No.
5: No. No, not even if you like needed something quicker. No. No, yeah. it's just not. It's more like so-
2: Kenneth Williamsy. That like, you probably don't even know who that is, but he was in a Carry On for a character. <laughs> <laughs> no.
5: Oh, oh, the the really tall guy. No. Oh right. Oh no. No. Ne- <laughs> Next one then. Uh, finally, another one for you, Mike, for the tongue twister of the week.
2: Yes. Suchus. Do you can suchus. Duke and Duchess of Sussex. (laughs) Yes, I don't know why I said that. I got quite a lot of these wrong yesterday.
5: That's all right. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And obviously, not forgetting a last minute entry for the wrong namer of the week.
2: Quite a substantial story, which is why we're looking at it and why we're doing it and why we're going to try and dig a little deeper into what it all means. Let's talk to Hermione Dace, a uh, policy analyst in technology and uh, Hermione. <laughs> Hermione. I say. Sorry, got that. Wrong. Um, well, you see, I don't know anyone called Hermione, <laughs> apart from the girl in her Harry Potter movies. Well, yeah, it's one yes. of those posh names. Yes. I mean, I don't meet a lot of Hermiones, to be honest. Or have my... you ever
5: met a Hermione?
2: Hermione, no, I don't think so.
5: (laughs) Me neither. No. Uh, On that note, that's all for the Perrier Awards. There will be more next week.
2: Marvellous. Thank you. The
0: Perrier Awards on Talk Radio.
5: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ